Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. My brand new book, Midwife Pip's Guide to a Positive Birth, is now available. So much more than a book, this is a guide that allows me to hold your hand through your birth preparation journey. With over a decade of experience and knowledge packed in, to ensure you really are empowered in the way you deserve to achieve a positive birth, regardless of the twists and turns that crop up. Make sure that you get your hands on Midwife Pip's Guide to a Positive Birth Book now and are empowered to have the birth experience that you deserve. I am back with a third season and wow so much has changed since season two mainly in that I've been on my own journey through pregnancy and have joined this crazy incredible club of motherhood for those of you who don't know me I'm Pip a practicing NHS midwife and enthusiast of all things women's wellness I have a somewhat relentless passion for ensuring women are empowered with real, honest and reliable information and support throughout their pregnancy. Because my goodness, pregnancy is such a powerful time in a woman's life that is often miraculous and challenging in equal measures. Over the upcoming weekly episodes, I am joined by many leading experts to bring you the evidence-based information and top tips to navigating your pregnancy and motherhood journey that you need to hear. Needless to say, I had my notebook at hand when recording this season, and I would recommend the same for you too. I hope you're ready for the giggles, knowledge bombs, and empowering chats to commence. But before I get quizzing our guests on this season, I have some questions for you. Have you found yourself with unanswered pregnancy questions? Have you been guilty of trying to navigate the rabbit warren of inaccurate information on the internet? Do you feel that extra support and guidance would be useful to you? If you answered yes to any of these, then fear not. My exclusive Your Pregnancy Journey course is for you. Spaces are limited, so if expert guidance through each stage of your pregnancy and birth preparation and a community support group with 24 access to asking questions sounds like it's for you, then head over to www.midwifepip.com now to check it out. And I look forward to getting to know you better and ensuring your pregnancy journey is the most empowering and positive it can be. You'll also find information all about my antenatal course options on my website. And any questions about choosing the right course for you, then please get in touch via the contact page and I'll be there to help you navigate the right choice. There is arguably no time in our lives that we focus more on our health and wellness than when considering a pregnancy or trying to conceive. But honestly, boosting your female fertility can feel like a minefield. Like most things women's health related, there are a lot of myths and misconceptions to navigate before finding the real evidence-based facts. Thankfully, on today's episode, we are joined by a real expert, Stephanie Valakas, founder of The Dietologist. Stephanie is dedicated to providing excellence in reproductive, fertility and pregnancy health and is going to help us understand what we can actually do to boost our fertility health, why it's something we should be considering and what myths we should leave well behind. Stephanie is an expert fertility dietitian and nutritionist and as I say, founder of The Dietologist. 
Stephanie and her virtual practice are dedicated to excellence for nutrition, reproductive health concerns, fertility and pregnancy. And her passion for nutrition in this space has truly grown from her experience helping her clients online from around the world. And also through her own experiences of navigating the diagnosis of endometriosis. You can learn how you can work with Stephanie and the dietologist team and find out more about all of her fantastic programs and resources by checking out the links in this episode description. So welcome Stephanie and thank you so much for joining me today from a little while away. We've navigated a um, big old time zone difference today which I'm super chuffed that we've uh, managed to pull off. I was expecting a few hiccups. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. I always find the same with my UK clients. I'm like, okay, someone's going to be sleepy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, or both of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've managed. So I'm, I'm like early morning, your evening time, but we yep. are navigating UK and Australia. So uh, we're taking it global on the podcast today, which is That's always good right. fun. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. No, I am thrilled. I'm so excited um, to pick your brains on all things kind of fertility health um, and nutrition related. It's something I'm also super passionate about. So I'm very excited to ask you all of my burning questions. But first of all, Stephanie, I just wonder what kind of drew you personally to be interested in kind of the areas of fertility health and nutrition? Because I guess with kind of nutrition and fertility, there's so many avenues that you could go into. Mm. Um, so kind of what led to the dietologist being born I suppose yeah it's a great question and you know fertility and reproductive health are not arenas that are really discussed in your dietitian training your typical um, university degree and I studied for five years to become a dietitian so it's a, it's a bit of a commitment and um, I got to the end of that degree and I was definitely considering pursuing um, pediatric or children's nutrition because I was all about preventative health. And I thought, well, what's better prevention than giving kids, you know, great nutrition and making sure they grow up in a really healthy way in a healthy environment. And I still, I still really do believe that that is an important area of nutrition, just not something I focus on anymore. And it was interesting because as I was practicing as a, as a private pediatric dietitian, I would start to notice that a lot of the, the issues that kids were having around food or their health, you know, once I started taking really good histories and I could work out what was going on with their mom and in pregnancy and what was going on prior to conception, what health conditions have been going on in the family and all these little bits and pieces. And it was one day where and I was doing some professional development. I was reading a um, a three-part paper series from The Lancet, which for anyone who's a bit of a science nerd is one of the one of the big boy kind of journal, scientific journals. And it was about how preconception health and particularly nutrition is by far in a way one of the most important um, times to intervene in people's health and that the implications were huge on not just fertility, but the health of the pregnancy, the health of the baby, not just in the immediate short term, but for years into their childhood and adult life. And that was definitely one of those aha moments. And I started to then pursue more um, knowledge and professional development in the area and then went out on my own and started my own practice, the dietologist. And yeah, I guess you could say the rest is kind of history. And along the way, I kind of had my own detour in um, discovering I had endometriosis, which was really mostly thanks to my, my own clients who would be coming in and talking about their own experiences. And, you know, we can all relate to, to some of it, but um, yeah, it was definitely them that was, I was like, okay, if the shoe was on the other foot and I was that client in that chair and I was, you know, there was a healthcare professional on the other side, uh, in my brain, I would be telling myself to go and get this sorted. So glad I listened to that. And I, I still thank them all to this day because yeah, I don't know how many more years I would have had put up with it before I got it sorted if this wasn't my job. Oh, so that's really powerful, actually. It's affected you quite personally, as well as obviously all the clients yeah. that you've been able to help, which is amazing. I love how powerful the time of pregnancy is. It's just completely blows my mind and fascinates me, the kind of power that we have in pregnancy for not necessarily even just our health, but like you say, the health of our 
children for years and years to come it's just incredible and I think it's something we need to shout about more and um, yeah. I think for a lot of women it's not quite understood so it's something we definitely need to kind of shout from the rooftops and I know we'll definitely touch on that today and um, yes. that's definitely our kind of fertile window if, if we like to call it that as um yeah. as women it's obviously kind of fairly wide in terms of our reproductive years um, and mm. I guess unpredictable because lots of pregnancies are unplanned mm. um I don't like the word accident but kind of perhaps not yeah. not planned or or kind yeah. of crop up unexpected so how mm. can we think about kind of boosting our fertility health or when should we think about it given that we know that not everybody kind of thinks right this year we're going to plan a baby we're going to spend xyz you know amount of time planning for that and then see what happens yeah I think it's one of those things where I always liken it to planning maybe a wedding and you know you get engaged and you have that exciting period and then you've got all that time kind of thinking about who you're going to invite and and all those kinds of things and obviously things have been a little different in recent times with wedding planning but um you know you give yourself some time to to prepare and, and save money and, and get, you know, get things in order. And, and we kind of want to do the same thing when it comes to preparing for a baby. And so I think if you're consciously wanting to prepare to try to conceive, give yourself six to 12 months, being a little bit more generous, isn't a bad thing. And I am really lucky now that I get to see people who are being this proactive and thinking about it, you know, a year in advance. And it's so nice for them because they get to six or nine months out from when they think that they might start actively trying to conceive. And then I'm like, look, you're in a really great spot. Just keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, on my end, you've got all the, all the ticks. I mean, no one's going to guarantee that you can fall pregnant until you try. <laughs> Even the best doctors don't know that until you try. Right. So I think that's really like a really good ballpark. But in my opinion, it's never too early to start thinking about it. And it's a really nice kind of, I guess, uh, heart back to the, that set of papers that I was just talking about that was saying that we should actually be educating people in their late adolescent years and their early 20s when most people wouldn't necessarily be entertaining the thought of pregnancy. And we know that particularly females are delaying pregnancy longer and longer. Um, and hence the rates of infertility are starting to also increase because of the age factor, which I know we're, we'll, pro we'll probably touch on at some point in this podcast. But yeah, I think it's never too early to start thinking about it. And the principles that you can apply are fairly simple. And so, and they're, they're conducive to good health anyway, and good reproductive health. And so I always like to refer back to one particular author's comments. I remember reading an article and it was saying that, you know, if you're not on birth control, you should be taking a prenatal supplement at a minimum in the situation that you fall pregnant unexpectedly. Um, that is not a bad idea. And I think the same kind of goes with nutrition. You know, we know that oral contraceptive pills, for example, can deplete our nutrient stores if you would take them long enough. So that's a factor. And yeah, I think it's never, never too early to start thinking about it. So as someone who's in my mid to late twenties, I probably started thinking about it a lot earlier than the average bear because it's my job. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, like if you would like to conceive at or have the option to conceive at some point in your life, don't delay thinking about it from now. That's really great advice. And, and I love what you said there, Stephanie, that actually, even if you know pregnancy is quite a few years potentially down the line for you, or you're, maybe you're even still waiting to meet your partner that you will have that future family with, actually mm. the benefits on all your other kind of health and wellness are so massive that there is yeah. really no harm in starting to think about sort of some of the ways no. to protect that later on so I guess really yeah. anyone who's planning at some point in their future that they might want a family actually starting to think about it sooner rather than later yeah. is a really great idea and just I guess normalizing some things so that later on it's kind of just a continuum of what you've been doing for the years previously. Exactly it's not a turn your life upside down overnight tomorrow because we're going to you know, go for fertility treatment or try for a baby. And I think that gradual um, ease into it is so much more nice and minimizes stress levels, which by the way, has an impact. So all those things come into play for sure. 
Yeah, such such a double win there. I love it. Now, one yeah. of the things I know lots of women worry about, and we touched on it there, and I was definitely in this category, is age and fertility. Yeah. And in a world when we are generally, as we said, kind of starting families later on in life, and women are having careers perhaps first, it's much less unusual for women to have babies kind of immediately early 20s, and women tend to be sort of having careers, doing other things, and then having having children kind of later on. What is your advice for trying to boost our health at that later age? Women who are listening and thinking, you know, perhaps their fertility is starting to be affected. And we mm. know naturally that that does happen. We're born with all our, our eggs for life when we when we are new, new little baby girls. So, um, yeah, what's your advice for kind of later in life and fertility? Yeah, I think the first thing is like, I always like to talk about it as, your age, unless you have a time machine in your backyard that I don't know about, is not a modifiable factor. So whilst it is a consideration and whilst you shouldn't delay any further, you know, there is, I have this great obstetrician colleague who always says there is never going to be an exactly perfect time. Um, there might be some better times in life and there might be some not as great times in life, but um you know, don't don't make unnecessary delays. If, you know, you're waiting for a, a perfect situation, it may not ever arise. And so that's probably, you know, some, some decent advice. But we can't change your age. So we've got to work with what we've got. And at the end of the day, we're not going to grow back any eggs either. So the egg count, we know, starts to diminish as we get older. And in fact, it starts to even diminish before we even hit puberty and we start ovulating, which people find absolutely wild. But it's true. Um, and so we do see a steeper decline in egg count um, and egg quality, particularly over 35. However, there are lots of lifestyle things that you can look at to help support your fertility if you are over 35, for example, and thinking about either trying for a baby, whether that be your first or your second or whatever that looks like for your family. Um, because as well, that's often a time where you may have already had maybe one baby before, you, one or two children before you were 35, and then you're looking to add to your family but now you're older and perhaps you're experiencing some delays, um, which is also called secondary infertility. So the key things that I really like to think about is that 90 day window prior to ovulation, which is that last maturation kind of sprint where your egg is going to go from a little baby primordial follicle into its big mature follicle and then be released and potentially fertilized. So we really want to be focusing from a female perspective on egg quality. And the way to do that is to really protect the egg from any potential harms. And that's usually in the form of reactive oxygen species or free radicals sometimes they're called. And what we want to do is really boost the antioxidant profile of your diet. So having a really big abundance of fruits and vegetables and olive oil and nuts and seeds and herbs and spices and oily fish all those things are going to help to support egg quality and protect the egg from this damage. And as well, you want to minimize things that could also enhance that damaging process. So you don't want to go too hard on things like alcohol or lots of saturated fats and deep fried foods and so on. So it's really about protecting, giving it that little shield or that little protective bubble, but also avoiding things that are potentially going to worsen that. And the other factor as well is about our environment, which is really about, you know, how much are we being exposed to endocrine disrupting chemicals, which can mimic our hormones and affect egg quality and create delays to fertility further, irrespective of age. And so all these things come into play as well as looking at a, a tailor designed supplementation plan. And that's just on the female side of the things, as we know as well, age comes into play for males as well. And so male factor infertility often has a lot of delay to diagnosis, but accounts for 30 to 50% of all delays to conception. And so we also need to be working on male preconception health. We know that that's almost equally as important to your child's future health as well as your ability to conceive. So same kind of deal, except with men, we've got a 74-day window where sperm turns over all the time. So in a way, they've kind of got the opportunity to really make great gains when it comes to sperm health within that similar three-month window as well. And the same kind of principles apply there as well. Well, that's such a good point because I think quite often when we think about um, kind of fertility or preconception care, the focus is so heavily on the woman 
Um, but like you say, it takes two, right? We need a sperm yeah. and an egg. They both need to be doing their job for for it to work. So I love that you yeah. kind of mentioned the the male factor in there. And is it similar in terms of those that like kind of antioxidant rich diet for men in terms of those loads of fruits and veggies, loads of healthy fats, kind of Mediterranean style diet, I guess. Is that kind of similar, the same for men as for women? Yeah, absolutely. And with the addition of particularly foods that are rich in zinc as well, because men actually have a far higher requirement for zinc compared to females because of it being lost in ejaculate. And so just like we lose iron with our menstrual cycle, they don't, they have a lower iron requirement. We have the, they have the reverse with zinc. So we want to be focusing on zinc rich foods like shellfish and seafood, legumes and beans and nuts and seeds. So our protein foods, they're really also going to help support sperm function and quality as well. Well, that's really interesting. And Stephanie, do you, um, through your team, do you work with both men and women? When it yeah, absolutely. Protein? We like, we have a very big open door policy in our practice. So, you know, I'm never going to say, oh, you can't work with us if your partner doesn't come to the consultation, because I, I like to meet people where they're at and everyone's in a different stage and phase of their journey in their life and so on. So I like to say, you know, any of our services are applicable to a couple and we're happy to add it on wherever you feel, whether they come along, they just listen. I have heaps of very lovely husbands and partners who just sit in the background and just nod and listen and uh, that second pair of ears. And then I have, you know, the men reaching out and saying, I want an appointment with my partner and we want to talk about X, Y, Z. So of course, there's always going to be a scale of proactiveness in, in that department as well, but they're welcome to come to any consultations and we're happy to give advice either through their female partner or directly to them or sometimes we just do sessions just with um, the males as well amazing that's really good to know because I think sometimes and and certainly when it comes to infertility um there's still a massive taboo around that and I think when we think about fertility health people will often assume that either you are struggling or you know there's there's still that kind of bit of maybe embarrassment or people don't want to speak up about it and we really need to just normalize it during childbearing ages I suppose don't we and just say you know doing this for our future longevity and for hopefully our, our future family absolutely now I know quite often the women that certainly I've worked with have perhaps had some conditions that have made them concerned about their ability to conceive or perhaps delayed their conception a little bit um, and a couple that spring to my mind so I know you spoke about um, endometriosis and your journey with that and also polycystic over ovary syndrome um, how can or, or can I suppose can nutrition and kind of lifestyle factors help women with such conditions to um, conceive yeah well let's start with PCOS first so PCOS um, stands for polycystic ovary syndrome is a cluster of symptoms that usually creates any regular period and particularly when you're trying to conceive irregular ovulation and the way that I like to think about PCOS is you know if everybody else who has a regular cycle gets 12 or 11, say, opportunities per year to potentially conceive, if you're having 45, 50, 60-day cycles, you may only have half of that. And so that is obviously going to potentially cause a delay in conception. Now, that's not the case for everybody. And I often get lots of clients come to me quite distressed saying that, you know, oh, my doctor said I won't be able to conceive without help because I have PCOS. And I think that is the biggest disservice that you could do because PCOS is so amenable to lifestyle changes. It is by far one of the, my favorite conditions to work with because I see such an improvement with lifestyle factors. And we have research to show that dietary changes can boost fertility by 69% in and of themselves. But if you're anovulatory or have irregular ovulation, such as in situations like PCOS, and then also other conditions like hypothalamic amenorrhea and thyroid dysfunction can create irregular ovulation, then it goes up to 84% of an improvement with diet factors alone. And that's not looking at exercise or taking your prenatal, that's just dietary. So there is a huge opportunity to make incredible progress when it comes to PCOS. However, my key piece of advice is do not delay in seeking that lifestyle advice because you don't want to get six to 12 months down the road because 
guess what? Lifestyle isn't like a pill that you take. You're going to have to work at it for a period of three to six months to reap the full benefit. And that's exactly why we work with people at the dietologist for that amount of time, because we know that one consult is probably not going to be enough to get the progress and the result that you're looking for. And we need to tweak and refine things as you go as well. So there's so much opportunity to really improve PCOS. And I love talking about it um, when it comes to diet. With endometriosis, it can be a little bit more different because endometriosis comes in different shapes and forms in terms of how progressed the disease is, which is an endometrium-like tissue or cell that is growing outside of the uterus and it can cause structural abnormality. So if we have a structural abnormality, there's nothing nutritional that's going to fix that. If your you know, tube is completely blocked with endometriosis or your ovary has had damage due to endometriosis, nothing nutritionally is going to reverse that, unfortunately. It's going to be medical. But what nutrition can support is egg quality, which is particularly important with endometriosis because of the inflammatory nature of excuse me, the inflammatory nature of the disease, which can then potentially impact egg quality. So what we want to be doing is facilitating an anti-inflammatory style diet, very similar to what I talked about with the egg quality, it kind of links up nicely there. Looking at other symptom sets such as pain, period pain, trying to manage that as optimally as possible because we also want to support quality of life uh, whilst trying to conceive. And because oftentimes a lot of the medical strategies that are given for endometriosis are birth control options. So obviously that's counterproductive when you're trying to conceive. So oftentimes it's when the quality of life factor becomes more important to take care of and nutrition can support that alongside a multidisciplinary approach as well, looking at things like exercise and acupuncture, pelvic floor, physiotherapy, medical, and so on. Um, and then also looking at any gut symptoms and resolving those as well. And that can help with nutritional absorption and also hormone um, levels, particularly things like estrogen, where the gut has quite a big role to play when it comes to estrogen removal and estrogen reactivation, particularly in people with endometriosis, which isn't so favorable when it comes to our fertility and also our symptom set as well. So yes, nutrition can help a lot in these two conditions. It's probably the two dominant things that we do see at our practice. Um, but yeah, there's a whole myriad of other conditions that can cause, you know, delays to conception for females. So yeah, there's certainly, certainly not the only things that we see, but very, very common. Absolutely. And I totally mirror what you said about women with um, PCOS saying, you know, I've been told that I probably won't be able to have children or I'm going to have massive difficulty. That's something I see all the time as well. Women say to me, no, I never thought I'd get pregnant and here we are on labels. <laughs> and it's, it's so, it's such, I, I totally agree. It's such a, a kind of negative or harsh almost diagnosis to present women with. Yeah. Not only have you got this condition, but now we're signing you up to infertility automatically before we've even explored your kind Anything. of fertile health. Yeah. Either not enough testing or like, you just don't, like I said, just don't know until you try, right? Yeah. And like, that's the same. I've had clients with both conditions, with both endometrius PCOS come to me, be so proactive. They're like, I know that it might take a long time, but I just want to know I'm going to do all the right things, whatever's in my control, because I can't control that I have these conditions. And then they come to me, they're like, oh my God, I can save after two months. What the heck? I did not expect that. And I was like, well, you just never know until you try, really. So um, yeah, I don't think anyone should have the label of, you know, infertility on their head before, you know, you even have a go. That's not yeah, fair. 100%. And I think as well, really you buy into well. it mentally too. Yeah. And our minds and bodies are so connected. I, I often think, you know, if we really believe something's going to happen or not happen, then actually perhaps we are going to influence that through that mind-body mm -hmm. connection. So yeah, I totally agree. Positive, optimistic outlook and um, focusing on boosting that, that preconception health is, is so important. Now, one of the things that we kind of know about in the pregnancy period is mm. um, limiting our caffeine consumption for helping reduce yeah. things like preterm birth and low birth weight babies, et cetera. What's the deal when we're trying to conceive? Does it have an impact? Yeah, so caffeine consumption, which typically comes in the form of our beloved tea and coffee um, and also things like chocolate and some soft drinks or 
bubbly drinks, fizzy drinks, whatever you call it, no, where you live in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and also things like energy drinks and some sports products also contain caffeine. A lot of people don't think about, you know, what they take before they go to the gym or, um, you know, their favorite protein bar might have some caffeine in it. So just A, identify the key sources of caffeine in your current diet. And B, we do recommend what we suggest for pregnancy to be the same for trying to conceive. So we aim for less is better, but less than 200 milligrams. So maximum being that. And an average cup of coffee can range a lot. So there was actually a really interesting little experiment done here in Australia. We're big fans of um, cafe coffee and espresso coffee in Australia. And so somebody went to several different cafes in a major city and they actually then quantified the exact caffeine amount in the, a single shot um, of espresso coffee. And they showed that there was a significant variation from about 50 milligrams all the way up to 200 milligrams per single shot. And so to give an average number is tricky because we're never really going to know, but we say around 100 up to 120, but you're never really going to know for sure. And so, you know, switching to decaf is, is a pretty easy switch. And whilst it feels very essential to have caffeine in your life, it's not like a vitamin or mineral where we need it to absolutely survive. We can live without it. So it's definitely not a necessity, but I think if you stick to one cup or less of coffee or two cups of like caffeinated tea, like black or green tea, you're well within kind of that safe limit. And then just having a look at what other sources of caffeine are in your diet and minimizing those as well. So if you're a two cup per day person like me uh, you might need to do a caffeinated one in the morning and then a decaf one in the afternoon that's great advice I've certainly found I was a proper coffee chain drinker pre kind of um preconception and pregnancy but actually just having that one kind of caffeinated nice coffee a day I've just made it like a little bit of a ritual and I think I enjoy it so much more and appreciate it so much more it does mean yeah. I also have to watch my chocolate and um, consumption which is a whole nother challenge oh, but, uh, <laughs> the sacrifices we make for our I coffee <laughs> yeah, it's a bit awful and is it the same it's same guidance for men sorry so just yeah it's very similar for men it was really interesting. I did some deep dive on, on this um, research a, a couple of years back and I saw this really interesting study that showed that men that had very, very high caffeine intake, so we're talking like 500, 600 milligrams per day. Wow, plus, that is high. Um, <laughs> we're more likely to go on to then be the father of twins. <laughs> wow, okay. It was like okay. such a random association. I was like, surely there's no mechanism here. That's just an accident. Um, but yeah, yeah, we do recommend similar. Um, I think the, the, uh, in my experience working with men and caffeine consumption, it's a combination of, they often are having much larger coffees than maybe females are. So they're having multiple shots in a, a stand, what versus what we would have as just a single shot. Um, so a, just scaling that back. And then B, looking at any other products, particularly if they love going to the gym um, and they use a lot of like sporty type products, which I have a podcast episode coming out on this topic. But um, yeah, you have to just be a little bit aware of that because I have seen some situations where we're talking about like the equivalent of two Red Bulls being in a pre-workout and stuff like that. So wow. we gotta we got to be careful that um, it's not coming in some other way that we may have overlooked. So yeah, around the two, really, you can go up to 300, but 200 is a good guideline for males as well. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And that's a really good point, actually, just recognizing where your caffeine is in your diet, because if you don't know yeah. where it even is being consumed from, then you've got no chance of trying to kind of reduce it or even monitor it. So that's that's a really awesome tip. Thanks, Stephanie. 
So let's talk a little bit more about food. So we spoke about, um, I think you mentioned oily fish, loads of fruits and veggies, nuts and seeds. Are there any particular foods that we should either limit or avoid when trying to boost fertility health or ones that we want to kind of pack into our diet in as, as much as we possibly can? Yeah. So we'll start with the things to avoid because I hate talking about it, but it is sometimes necessary. I like <laughs> to talk about what we can be eating more of because then naturally all that other stuff kind of falls away. It's much more fun. I hate being that Debbie Downer dietitian being like, don't eat this and don't eat that and don't eat this. That's no, that's no fun for me or you. So um, my key ones are the ones that we know are inherently probably scratch off the list almost entirely. Processed meat, so things like, um, salami and ham and prosciutto and bacon. We know that people that have high consumptions of processed meats, both females and males, experience significant delays to conception compared to those who didn't. And that could be due to other dietary factors as well. But also we know that they're high in saturated fats and they're also off the menu when you're pregnant anyway. So it's probably not a bad idea to cut back. And the World Health Organization has told us that too much of those things aren't good for our general health anyway. So it's not a bad idea. Take it off the menu. The second one is soft drinks or fizzy drinks or sugar sweetened drinks. So particularly um, sodas and stuff like that, because we have seen research to show that both regular and artificially sweetened, so like zero varieties, when you have one or more per day, that that also creates a delay to conception. So we definitely want to scale back, including artificial, artificially sweetened or zero varieties, because I know a lot of people trade for those, which is a really good first step in cutting back on additional sugars in your diet, because we know that those ones are particularly not great for our teeth and our general health and well-being. So we want to cut back, absolutely. But we also want to step it back once more and look for something like a sparkling flavored water um, or something like that to help just mitigate that risk altogether. And the third one is alcohol. We want to be really mindful about alcohol intake in that preconception period because after you ovulate, if you've tried, you could potentially be technically pregnant. So in a way, we want to be really mindful of our alcohol intake. The ideal is zero, but obviously there's going to be weddings, there's going to be celebrations, there's going to be birthdays, and we still got to live life. And particularly if you've been trying to conceive for a long time, it's not really practical to say, hey, have zero alcohol every month for the next three years, because you just never know what month you could fall pregnant. Um, and yeah, going back to the whole unplanned pregnancy thing, there's probably heaps of people out there that have irregular periods, have no idea, turns out they're pregnant, find out when they're six weeks and they've been drinking the entire time. Obviously, it's not advice we would give, but you know, it happens. So I just suggest try to cut back as much as possible, particularly at home, save it for special occasions and events and stuff like that. And they just don't drink too much in one sitting. And the same guys, the same goes for men as well. Like don't overdo the alcohol. It does impact sperm quality. The amounts, I mean, there's no good consensus at the moment. Like every single research article I pick up, less than seven per week, less than two per week, less than 14 per week. It, it, there's no good number. So start where you're at. If you know it's above what it should be, almost everyone I talk to knows if it's above where it should be. You, you just know. <laughs> you might not always <laughs> admit it to a healthcare practitioner, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Just start scaling it back. Just start scaling it back. So if you find yourself, oh, it's Tuesday night and we're cracking open a bottle of wine just because maybe maybe we need to keep it in the fridge so yeah that that would be my tip on on things to avoid um and then things to oh one more thing to avoid is mercury rich fish so we don't want fish that are high in mercury such as flake or shark um catfish orange roughy marlin broadbill swordfish it depends on the country you live in obviously fish species vary quite a lot but you do want to be mindful of your mercury intake both in preconception and during pregnancy and limit those fish species as well on the flip side foods to load up on are things like oily fish so we talked about that so salmon trout mackerel sardines and anchovies at least twice per week and also other seafood so other white fish um, shellfish and so on they're super super nutritious and we do know that couples that consume seafood at least twice per week had um, shorter times to conception and interestingly they had more sex 
fun fact. Uh, so I wonder <laughs> if the whole oyster being an aphrodisiac thing comes into play there, which Could is well a be. very rich source of zinc. <laughs> um, so yeah, definitely seafood is, is one of those key food categories. Then I always advocate for my clients to eat at least one vegetarian meal per week if they can and focusing on either legumes and beans or some tofu. That's also been shown 25 grams of animal protein traded out for 25 grams of plant protein shows shorter times to conception amongst both females and males. And then um, the other things I would be really looking for is fruit, at least two fist-sized servings per day. Try and get a good variety in the amount of people that just eat berries and bananas every single day for the rest of their days. We have to change it up, okay? <laughs> Think seasonal and you need to mix it up a little bit more because that way you get a broader spectrum of antioxidants coming into your diet. And then veggies, so we're getting our fiber in, keeping our bowels moving regularly. That helps get rid of any hormone excesses. Also keeps you fuller for longer. So for those people looking to maybe lose a couple kilos before they try to conceive, then that's a really easy way to bump up your fiber intake, keep you fuller for longer. So lots of veggies. And then a handful of nuts. So walnuts are particularly great for male fertility. And a Brazil nut per day will also help you reach your selenium targets, which is great for both sperm health and also supporting thyroid function for females. So I usually recommend incorporating that as well. And then using a healthy fat in your diet or in your cooking. So I recommend extra virgin olive oil because it performs the best in terms of heat and it has its own antioxidant profile. And it's a healthy fat. So, I mean, win, win, win all around. And things like avocado, nuts and seeds, those fats are going to be the building blocks of all of our steroid hormones. So we want to make sure we're getting enough healthy fats as well. And red meat, you can have a couple times per week. You need to get your iron in. So if you do choose to eat red meat and everyone's different with this, I would recommend including some that is lean, as in not too much fat. And also eggs. I also recommend eating at least four to six eggs per week, if not more, to help reach your choline requirements, which is found in the egg yolk. And choline helps support the role of folate in the body, which is usually found in your green leafy veggies. And that's important as well to help reduce the risk of neural tube defects. So we want to make sure we're getting in our choline. And all this stuff carries over really nicely into pregnancy. So the good news is, is you won't need to like completely shake everything up once you do hopefully conceive um and yeah i mean most people kind of feel a little bit sick in their first trimester so they feel really good that they did all the right things preconception to try and carry them through until they start feeling a little bit better in the second trimester and then that can kind of resume their normal eating again oh my gosh i can totally relate to that stephanie my first trimester was all full of nausea and vomiting but my Ugh. preconception period was top-notch nutrition so that really balanced out that guilt of crisp sandwiches in the first, yeah. like, first trimester and that's what also, I say to my clients I'm like don't worry it's not wasted it's just carrying you through and yeah. they're like I feel like I was a different person just yeah. like six weeks ago and I'm like I know it's okay it's normal we just get through it don't stress but like my body was like possessed for six weeks by this like oh. toddler that just wanted beige food it was awful but thankfully it didn't last and we are back on the it passes yeah. <laughs> I'm also definitely playing that bit back to my husband about the um Brazil nuts and walnuts I think he thought I was a little bit crazy when we were planning for a baby and I bought him this pack of uh, Brazil nuts and walnuts and he's like right I want you to eat two of those every day for the foreseeable yeah. <laughs> I'm a beautiful no. client yeah oh, like, there was a reason <laughs> yes there is a reason yeah just takes me back to one of my one of my beautiful clients who gave her husband a nut prescription <laughs> and she called she called her her nut prescription and he really hated eating I think it was I can't remember if it was a Brazil nut or another type of nut so he would like just swallow it whole <laughs> instead of chewing it because he was like I hate the flavor but she was like it's like a tablet you just got to take it it's really important <laughs> I love it I love it and actually to be fair with nuts I mean if you because because I get it like especially like walnuts they're quite an earthy kind of yeah. um taste something I mean I love them but if you don't actually putting them in like smoothies or stuff or chopping them up in porridge you actually then don't notice so there are yeah. no excuses out there to uh men or women listening who uh yeah. who need to get their daily uh Brazil nuts and walnuts in and <laughs> <laughs> um, are there any supplements we should consider taking I mean for men or women or both 
Yeah, absolutely. I think obviously it's going to be really individualized. And I, I talk about this in my own, in my own podcast as well about, you know, uh, you can listen to um, a podcast and go, okay, great. I'm going to go out and buy this. Or you see an ad on your Instagram feed and, you know, it's got nice packaging or whatever and you buy it and you think, oh, great, I'm doing the right thing. And we do know that we need to be supplementing with at least folate and iodine in one to three months prior to conception. I always say three months, one month, cutting it too fine in my opinion, but um, that's the kind of government recommendations, one to three months. So I always say three months before, definitely take a prenatal specific supplement. You don't want to just pick up a multivitamin off the shelf. And the reason why I say that is because multivitamins in general will contain um, vitamin A in the form of retinol too much retinol in that preformed form um, is going to be a potential teratogen which can hurt your baby so we don't want something that isn't prenatal specific and um, some prenatals still do contain vitamin a but as beta carotene which is kind of the form you find in carrots and our body can actually regulate how much of that is con- converted into vitamin a so it's safe um, so yeah definitely take a prenatal multi supplement i find that also fills in other nutritional gaps like selenium um, zinc a little bit of iron vitamin d and so on and then the rest is really informed by diet and blood work. Um, so, you know, if you, particularly in the UK, I know right now it's nice and warm, but, you know, at different times of the year, vitamin D levels do drop. Um, and particularly with the last couple of years that we've had in terms of the pandemic, I've seen a lot of my clients with incredibly low vitamin D levels. So getting that checked and corrected will in, impact your egg quality and also the health of your pregnancy. Um, we know that very, very low vitamin D levels in pregnancy actually increases the risk of your baby having certain conditions such as asthma, allergies, um, and some autoimmune diseases as well. So it is important to be on top of, and we also want to be on top of your iron levels because we don't want to head into pregnancy, which is the time where we have the biggest iron demands in the second and third trimester as our blood volume expands and be on the back foot when it comes to iron. So you want to get that level checked first before you supplement. Um, And that's really important because there is a small number of women who actually naturally have excellent iron levels or even have really high iron levels. And some people have a genetic condition where they overstore too much iron. So obviously we don't want to supplement on top of that, but a good blood test with your general practitioner or your if you're in the States, your PCP is going to give you some good information and guidance about what you might need to correct in addition to a prenatal supplement. And generally speaking, I almost always recommend an additional um, omega-3 as well, because we do know 200 to 300 milligrams of DHA is important in pregnancy and can also help support egg quality as well. And then it's nuanced from there. So obviously people who are going through things like fertility assistance, we might look at specific things there to help with implantation. Um, If we know there's a particular sperm parameter that we need to target, we'll look at particular sets of supplements for that. Um, If you're trying to conceive over 35, we'll look at a particular set of supplements for that. Depends on medical history. It's it's very nuanced. And it's why we do kind of mini supplement consult calls with people that have their diet down pat, but they're like, wow, the supplement market's overwhelming, please help, Um, which is very common. So yeah, I think, you know, and then there's certain people that also have folate demands 10 times the everybody else's requirements. So it's going to be very, very hard to give it a great blanket, but I think start looking into a prenatal multi, consider an omega-3, and if you can access it, talk to somebody like me or my team about a personalized supplement protocol based on your lab work as well. For the men, I, you know, we don't have any great evidence to say like all men who are trying to conceive should be taking a prenatal multi. I have, I think eventually we will have something to say that, but for right now we don't. Um, so I like to give it more as a participation so that they feel a little bit invested in what's going on. Cause most of the time it's going to have zero harm. And especially if I assess the diet and I feel like it could use a little bit of an extra gap fill whilst we work on things, I will prescribe it. But there's a lot of mixed research. So we originally had research to say, oh, taking zinc and folic acids in supplement form is great for sperm factors. And then it turned around and said, oh, no, actually, it was only from diet. Don't worry about the supplement. So it's a bit of a mixed bag at the moment. So it's definitely not absolutely essential because there's no increased demands but if the diet requires it 
or there's a particular sperm parameter, I would say it's absolutely essential at that point. And then the rest of the time it's at best, it's helping at worst, it's not doing anything. So yeah, take what of, you will. Yeah, no, no harm. So kind of, yeah, yeah might, might as well give it a go, I suppose. And yeah. when it comes to um, men, I'm conscious that men often might not discuss the fertility journey as much as women. I mean, women quite often don't discuss it very much, um, but perhaps even more of a kind of taboo um, with men. Now, when, when we think about male fertility um, and kind of sperm counts and sperm mobility and fertility and the kind of morphology of sperm, can nutrition impact all of those factors or are there some where it, where it kind of isn't going to help so much? Yeah, I mean, obviously it depends why the sperm is doing what it's doing. So obviously if you've had a cancer treatment, we're not going to be able to completely reverse that with lifestyle factors or if you you know, have um, a genetic condition or um, an undescended testicle that wasn't treated from birth, all those factors, it becomes a little bit more challenging for diet and lifestyle to really give 100% of what it could potentially do in other circumstances. So, um, yeah, I mean, I usually have a look at the results and see what stands out. In my experience, the one that always jumps out is um, morphology which is shape that one is almost always a little bit borderline so concentration's fine the count's fine the motility can sometimes be out but sometimes just the shape so the percentage of normal shaped um, sperm the who cutoff is four percent so it's actually not a lot. So even if there's millions and millions of sperm, only 4% are the right shape to potentially fertilize an egg or more. So that's not a lot. And so we need to then start to really actually work on morphology, which is sperm shape. And so there are specific things that we can look at in terms of diet and lifestyle factors that you could help to support it. Um, so yeah, it is gets a little bit more individualized and as well, there's another kind of layer of sperm analysis called um, DNA integrity analysis or DNA fragmentation analysis. There's a little bit, some doctors find it a little bit controversial, but it's a real test. It's not, you know, it's nothing too wacko, but basically what that's looking at is um, whether the DNA that lives within the sperm is actually broken or not. Um, so obviously if the DNA um, isn't intact it's got less chance of it being fertilized and turning into a healthy baby and so sometimes you can have a completely normal count concentration motility morphology everything volume and all that good stuff but the quality of the of the genetic material within the sperm itself has been damaged and that is highly highly amenable to lifestyle as well so for the most part highly amenable to lifestyle factors in the exception of there's some situations where it, it, it's probably going to require a lot more medical intervention. Um, but give yourself three months to give it a good crack, I would say, if you can, to work on things pretty intensively with a practitioner like myself and then um, reevaluate and see what it's looking like. Yeah. So quantity, quality over quantity and definitely lifestyle factors can, can help with that. So that's quite empowering to any men who perhaps are you know, um, if, ne negotiating their kind of fertility health. One of the things we mentioned um, briefly when we were just talking about kind of foods to limit and avoid was um, potentially people that might be considering either losing weight or, I mean, gaining weight, I guess, on either side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Can our kind of body weight or body fat percentage have an uh, impact on our kind of fertility health? And, and again, is that something we should be thinking about optimising in this kind of potential preconception period, however long that might be? Yeah. I think it depends on how much time you've got, in my opinion. So if you have a hard deadline of we're trying to conceive in two months and I would like to lose or gain 10 kilos, well, are we really <laughs> going to be achieving happen. that in the healthiest <laughs> way without compromising all these key nutrients and things we need to be focusing on and, and at what cost as well? Um, so I think, yes, we want to optimize body fat levels, which is actually what we need to be working on. I know a lot of people talk about BMI and weight and stuff. It's actually got to do with body fat levels too low. You won't ovulate. And so your, your cycle will shut down. So we need to bring them up to help support ovulation and potential conception and too high. That's going to create, um, an impact on equality 
We do know that people that have higher body fat levels have more presence of inflammatory proteins and so on in the fluid that surrounds their eggs. Um, and they're more likely to experience a delay in fertility. So um, we do know that. And so we do want to optimize. And the more time you give yourself, the better. So if you are someone who's like, wow, conception's not till, you know, three to five years down the track, but I know I'm a little bit above what is most comfortable for me in terms of weight, start thinking about seeing somebody now. Don't wait till one month before and think that you're going to drop a few stone just before. Not going to happen. A, not safe. And B, you are going to absolutely compromise yourself nutritionally and it's just not worth it. So looking at it in a more slow and sustainable way is going to be much more effective. And just know as well, like we're not talking about going back to what you were in high school. We're talking about a very small amount of weight loss for most people can create a really big impact when it comes to the quality of the egg and then the outcome when it comes to certain fertility treatments in particular. Same goes for men as well, where weight has a, has a role to play when it comes to sperm factors as well, not just eggs. So it is a tricky topic to, to talk about. And I think it is something that we need to be aware of, but I don't think that we need to be extreme in our measures when particularly in the immediate preconception period, because I do see some people using things like weight loss medications and stuff like that, which aren't safe for pregnancy. And so my concern is if you do achieve the ultimate goal of getting that positive pregnancy test, that's not actually the ultimate goal. It is when you have a long fertility battle. Totally understand because that's the, that's the stepping stone to a baby. But the goal is a healthy baby. And so I am always a little bit concerned that, well, if it was just the medication that was helping you to drop a few kilos before you conceived and sure that may have helped you but are we now have no skill set to now maintain a healthy weight during pregnancy when we can't use this medication and what will that mean does that mean you're going to gain an excessive amount of weight in your pregnancy and we know that that's associated with different outcomes as well so it's a little bit tricky so the more time that you have the better so I guess focusing more on that nutritional sort of supercharging your your body's kind of nourishment and looking after your body in that way and avoiding any of these kind of fast track fads or adverts that we see. Um, yeah. That, that, oh, they, they call them fast tracks. I'm not really convinced they are because I think if we looked at... No, detours, I call them. Yeah. <laughs> it's really not a fast track. It's just a, a kind of selling marketing dream, isn't it? So actually, and actually, I think probably for most people, if you really did start to focus on your, you know, limiting all that processed food, limiting all that refined sugar and switching it to a real naturally. nourishing diet. Exactly that. It happens naturally yeah. and sustainably. So definitely yeah. the way to go. Oh, Stephanie, I could speak to you all day. I just find it all fascinating. <laughs> I just want to pick your brains and pick your brains. I find it so fascinating. But I, I will let you get on with your evening. But I wondered before I let you go, if you could just give us three top tips to any either expectant or you know um pre preconception mums and or dads um mm -hmm. your kind of three top take-home tips yeah I think my first tip would be definitely touch base with your doctor and get some basic blood work done I think knowing where you're at health-wise you'll be surprised how many times we pick up things and the good news is is that we can be really proactive about it at that point in time um, and yeah, it's, it's really, really important. I think it's a crucial step to ensuring that we are preparing ourselves really well for pregnancy. So that's probably my first tip. My second tip is to make your fruit and veggie and your colorful eating, as I like to call it, your key priority in each of your main meals. Of course, still have your source of carbohydrates and your proteins and your healthy fats and all that good stuff. And you want a nice, well-balanced meal. But um, I always talk about it in, um, in context of a lot of the times, like here in Australia, for example, if you go down to the pub and you get a pub meal, you'll get the key thing on the plate is your meat. You got your meat and then you got your veggies on the side. And it's like a With small the garnish. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, it's this little sprig of parsley. Thanks. Um, so that's the, the, the protein is the focus. And then if you go to certain other cuisines, it'll be the rice and the bread is the, is the, the bottom, the, the foundation, the most amount and so start to shift your perspective and start to think about the vegetable as that main component and then the protein and the carbohydrates and the healthy fats to complement 
It's going to look a little bit different depending on your goals, but it's a really good place to start. So that would be my second tip. My third tip would be to, if you are not a fish fan, get on board with the fish, first of all, if you can. And second of all, if you're not, definitely consider omega-3 supplementation. I think it's just too important to miss out on of a nutrient. Um, and it has so many benefits to preconception health and also pregnancy health outcomes as well. So too important to miss out on. So if you can have some oily fish like salmon or sardines twice a week, absolutely go for it. If you're really struggling with the fishiness of it, um, have a conversation with your healthcare provider about omega-3 supplementation. That's a brilliant tip. I love that one because I think the evidence shows us that most people are actually deficient in the amount of omega-3 we're getting anyway. And in you yeah. know how powerful this period is that you've just spoken about. I mean, it's a great time to then think about, you know, really trying to boost that, boost that for our health and also our future pregnancy and, and baby's health. Stephanie, thank you so much. As I said, I could keep chatting to you all day, but thankfully we can hear more on um, your podcast as well, which is linked in the bio, Fertility Friendly Food. Um, thank you so much. Have a wonderful evening. And I am very grateful for you sharing all of your expertise and tips for us today. Thank you so much for having me, Pip. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you found it helpful, then please hit subscribe and leave a review. It really does make a huge difference to the number of women I can reach out to and empower with this information. For more daily free information, inspiration or details on my bespoke antenatal education courses or your pregnancy journey course, then head over to my website www.midwifepip.com and check out my Instagram page at midwife underscore pip. Thank you and see you next time. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.